Hello, Fellowship. I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the elder board, as four of our current elders will be completing their terms of service next summer. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of fellowship. We are not a church with elders, we are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you. Good evening, family and friends, Fellowship Mosaic. Happy Saturday. We have some guests up on the stage today. Hey, Michael. We got our kids choir, let's stand up, let's get pumped up, let's sing together with one voice, one excited voice here tonight. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my turn till I met you. I was feeling but not alive. All my failures I tried. To hide, it was my tune till I met you. Come on, you called my name, and I ran out of that grave. Out of the darkness into your glory.
guys can have a seat. Well, hey, good evening, Mosaic. Here I am, out of the shadows. <laughs> um, hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Um, I know this week has maybe been crazy. You may be dealing with allergies. You may be dealing with weird weather. You may be dealing with a lot of family in town. Wherever you find yourself, I just want to say thank you for choosing to be here with us tonight. Um, our prayer is that wherever you find yourself coming in, that you have the opportunity to just encounter Jesus and feel the peace of his presence while we're here. That being said, we're gonna kick this evening off. Um, my name's Ashley Covert. I'm the communications coordinator here. You're probably very distracted with me um, holding the camera, running around, taking shots of everything we're doing. I'm taking advantage of my body life announcing tonight to be on uh, stage right now, taking a couple pictures because my cell group girls are in the choir. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, but we will jump to the rest of our evening. If you are brand new with us, thank you so much for being here. There are ways to connect with us here on the screen. You can text, you can fill out an I'm new form. You can also just come snag one of us uh, from the info booth after service. Um, real quick plug for the video you saw as you're coming in. We have elder nominations coming up. 
We're gonna talk a lot more about that next week, but if you want to start figuring out what that process is like, we've got a website right there for you to check out. Next thing we're gonna do is watch a second video. Um, whenever we open up our disaster relief fund, um, we're telling you constantly about where those funds are going or partnerships that we have. We actually have a little bit of an update on some of the funds we've been able to use um, when we opened up disaster relief funds for the Ukraine war. So I'm gonna have us run that video real quick and then we'll jump back to our evening. Well, hello, Fellowship. Hello, fellowship. Uh, my name is Mike Schatzman. Uh, I'm with Crew in Portugal. And I want to say thank you say for giving generously to helping us uh, meet, meet the needs of Ukrainian, Ukrainian refugees, refugees uh, in Portugal uh, and in Portugal Ukraine. And in Ukraine. Through, your generosity, Through your generosity, we've been able to been help, to resettle, help resettle, resettle the Ukrainian families in Portugal. In fact, even today, fact, we're, even still today helping, we're still helping walk beside six walk families, beside families six as they uh, as get they, accustomed uh, to Portugal, find jobs, and we're able to still help them meet some of their financial needs and physical needs. We've also used a portion of that money you've given to walk beside and partner with our Ukrainian national staff as they're still in Ukraine. As more and more Ukrainians are now returning to Kiev and the surrounding areas, they're returning to homes that have been looted and to villages that have been destroyed. Our Ukrainian staff have been delivering boxes each week to these families in Ukraine and these surrounding villages of Kiev, delivering boxes filled with, uh, with food and home goods. And they're not just taking care of their physical needs, they're sitting down with them, praying with them and listening to them. Through your generous giving, Ukrainian refugees in Portugal and in Ukraine are seeing their physical, spiritual, and emotional needs taken care of. Thank you guys for giving generously. Awesome. So we've talked a lot about the culture of generosity that we hope to have cultivated here at Fellowship and Fellowship Mosaic. Um, I know when something like this isn't front and center, it may be easy to put it at the back of your mind or forget it completely, but I just want you to realize the impact that those donations have had uh, in the lives of families in Portugal and, and still in Ukraine. So just wanted to say thank you for that. Okay, one last thing. Uh, we have Friendsgiving coming up. If you are a small group leader, you are invited. We just need you to register by the 8th. So you can follow that QR code. It'll take you to the news page. That is it. Okay, last thing. We have a baptism tonight, and we are so excited about it. We talk about family being a huge part of, uh, of this body. Um, so now, again, with my camera, I'm just gonna move myself right over here. Um, this is Murray and Addie Smart, and I'm gonna let them cut my mic and have them take over. Well, hi, Mosaic family. Um, like she said, my name is Murray. My wife and I have attended Mosaic for about 10 years now, and this is our oldest, Adelaney. Uh, this comes about after about two years ago, she said, hey, mom, dad, I, I wanna follow Jesus and I wanna, I wanna get baptized. And, uh, and we said, great, this is awesome. Like, this is great news, we'll celebrate it with you. And so we actually uh, took a little bit of time uh, and had her go through a couple Bible studies with one of her uh, small group leaders and wrestle with the faith a little bit um, and come out on the other side and, and, uh, and now it's time to celebrate. And so... Um, Addie, is it your story here that you have given your life to Jesus and you wanna follow him the rest of your life? Yes. Then it is my privilege as your dad to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Hey, 
will you stand with us and continue in worship? God, we are so grateful for Adelaine. We're grateful for her testimony of faith in you tonight. And uh, we want to celebrate. So may you be pleased by the words of our mouth here in this place.
Jesus, we worship you as the lion and the lamb. What a mystery. What a mystery of the faith. And we're grateful for that mystery because it shows your strength and your might and it shows your incredible tenderness and compassion. And we love you for that. We love you for that, Jesus, our King. Amen. pray and, and, and spend our time taking our offering. It's something that we've, we've invited this offering prayer time together to be able to, um, 
to be able to focus the why behind the giving. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when the, the plate comes through, it's usually a, an awkward inter- interruption to uh, singing that I try to figure out like where the next person on the aisle is. So a big part of having that prayer time is so that we can, um, so that we can give an act of worship to that time of giving as we partner together. And one of our desires as a church is to always be honest with the family about what's going on and, and let this family be together in what our church is doing. So I want to have a time of honesty of where we are as a church. This last year was a really exciting year of launching a lot of new things. Um, we got to launch a congregation in Bentonville. We got to launch a congregation in Springdale with Samaritan, a congregation in Rogers and Samaritan. We saw a lot of growth and expansion happen throughout all of covid and all the interruptions that was, giving stayed strong. And this was the year, with everything that's going on economically, that our giving took a hit for the first time. And it took a pretty significant hit. And what, what the elders at first did was they said, staff, let's trim every area we can. And so the staff went into overdrive, just cutting every area of spending we could. And we had some cash reserves, and we've been doing okay, but we're starting to hit a point where they're going to be, if something doesn't change harder decisions are going to have to be made coming up in the next year. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I hear about different organizations that are asking to give, uh, I, I have my family and then that organization, and that's the way I do the equation. But once a month, my wife and I sit down with our budget, and we talk about our family income and our family needs, and we try to make wise decisions for how we're going to move forward and seek the Lord. And what I want to invite us as a congregation to do is to seek the Lord together. And I want to buy every person who's a part of this congregation, instead of thinking of this as their, the church's financial issue, I want to invite us to join together and see this as our family question. And we don't know what the Lord has for us. Um, our elders are committed to being financially and fiscally responsible. And so we want to pray about what the Lord has for, for fellowship going forward. And whether that means some more painful decisions around finances or if the Lord supplies the generosity for us to be able to move forward on a lot of the initiatives we have out in front of us, that's something that we're entering into a season of prayer for for the next several weeks going into the, the new year. So I just wanted to be honest with that about us as a congregation and invite you to join us in prayer. And so as we pray uh, for the offering that's about to be taken here in just a moment, I want us to commit that prayer to the Lord. Each word of this offering prayer um, that we would recognize where the Lord has us and, and participate together in seeking the Lord for what he has for our church. So um, as, as that offering prayer comes up, would you join me? Um, let's actually pray this out loud together and commit all of our resources that we have as a church and as a church family to the Lord and seeking his wisdom for how we steward that best. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, For all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord.
new song. You guys got to help me. Can we stand up? I'm
Thanks, DJ. Hey, you guys can take a seat um, as we welcome Josh and Melissa Pinky. Oh, uh, just Melissa. <laughs> Up to the stage for the reading description. Hey, Mosaic. My name is Melissa Pinky. Um, and my husband and I lead a community group for young families. So if you are a young family and looking to get connected, we'd love to talk to you. And maybe you can join our group. Um, so tonight we're going to be reading from Ephesians 5, through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through, through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Well, good evening. Hey, uh, it has been just a blast going through Ephesians, and as we, as we pick up tonight, um, it's really fascinating watching the body language in the room after reading Ephesians 5 out loud. Um, just take a breath, everyone. We're going to be Okay. Uh, it's been fascinating doing one of the things I get to, one of the most fun things I get to do is enter into the premarital process with couples. And uh, it has been fascinating um, to see how many couples, like session one, when we start talking about marriage and the scriptures, I hear something like, you better not read Ephesians 5 at my wedding. Or we need to talk about Ephesians 5. Which speaks to there's something happening uh, in our understanding of marriage and relationships between men and women um, and, and what the scriptures lay out in front of us that needs to be addressed. On top of that, aside from the particular commands of this, there's a lot of hurt around marriage. Um, it's the source of a lot of pain. And as soon as we start opening up the scriptures to, to talk about this issue, everybody has a story. Everybody has their experience that they bring to the table. And there's a lot of variety in that in this room. There are probably some of you that as soon as we start talking about marriage, you just snuggle up to the next person next to you because you're feeling all warm and fuzzy talking about the relationship between husband and wife. And then some of you are like, I'm, you've already got your shoulder turned to the person sitting next to you, um, or you're grieving the person who's not sitting next to you. Um, and so there's a lot of different stories going on in this room, and we want to acknowledge that, and we want to dive into the scriptures believing that wherever on the spectrum we, we find ourselves in our personal stories relationship to the idea of marriage, that it is the purpose of Jesus to restore everything that's broken and to bring joy and healing to every relationship in his way. We referenced it a couple of weeks ago, the idea from that wonderful children's curriculum that says, Jesus knows me better than I know myself, so I can trust him. 
So as we dive into the scriptures tonight, we want to dive in with that, that attitude of letting God speak into one of the most central and important relationships that we experience in human life. So with that said, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and picking up after where we were last week, um, we end, we're in this section in chapter 5, we're talking about ethics. We're talking about what it looks like to live a life that corresponds to the calling we have in Christ. Chapters 1 to 3 were filled with these glorious descriptions of everything that God has done for us in Christ. And one of the central metaphors is that Jesus has made us new people. He's taken people that used to walk in darkness, that used to be broken and have broken minds and broken hearts, and he's beginning to make us new. And what that means is every aspect of our life has to be made new. And what's really interesting as we come to this section in Ephesians chapter 5 is it's almost impossible to figure out how in English to capture the very, very long Greek sentence that is happening in chapter 5. And so in most of our Bibles, understandably, it gets translated in a way that you actually lose the context of what's happening. And so the best way I knew to do it is to show it to you visually on the screen. So take a look at how this section of Ephesians 5 breaks down. Um, last week, Matt Natzel taught us on this beginning of chapter 5, and as we came to the end, there is a command, be filled with the Spirit. The idea of the Spirit being the, the member of the Trinity that is actively making us new runs throughout the whole letter of Ephesians. And after this command about how we should behave differently, that we should put off the old, put on the new, be renewed in our mind, there's a command that you should let the Spirit fill you up. It's, in, it's contrasted to the way alcohol works in our body. The alcohol, when it fills you up, it causes all of your thinking to be distorted and your, your decision-making ability to be impaired. But rather, when the Spirit fills you up, your decision-making, your perception becomes clear and God-honoring. And then grammatically, the way that the sentence works is you have this command to be filled with the Spirit and then five little follow-up helping verbs that paint a picture of what that looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So what does it look like when a people are totally filled by God's Spirit? They're gonna be a community that is speaking to each other the words of God. They're gonna be singing praise psalms. They're gonna be making music. They're gonna be giving thanks. And then they're going to be submitting to one another. Doesn't that seem like a weird left turn at the end of that list? All of the others have to do with speaking words happening in the community that we're gonna talk about what God's done, we're gonna sing about what God's done, we're gonna give thanks to God for what he's done, and then it says that our relationships should change, that they should be marked by this idea of submitting to one another, of yielding to one another. In the letter to the Philippians, this is described as having a humble mindset like Jesus that considers someone else's needs ahead of my needs. In fact, this is a theme that if you want to chase it down in the New Testament, it's all over the place. Almost any time the concept of the Spirit is mentioned, the person of the Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, very close by, there's going to be the idea of the people of God living in loving harmony together. That seems to be the primary indicator that the Spirit is, work in a, is at work in a group of people, is that those people love each other and live in unity. Now, here's the interesting thing. That's how verse 21 ends. And in the Greek, in verse 22, there actually is no verb. Most of your, your English translations will print the verb 
wives submit to your husbands, which is an accurate rendering of the sense, but the way it literally reads is, in the church, when you're filled with the Spirit, you should learn to submit to each other, and wives to your husbands. Now, that doesn't change in any way the concept of submission. What it does is gives it context. The context in which this marriage, this picture of marriage that Paul is going to unpack takes place is in the context of a spirit-filled community, of a group of people who are learning together how to consider other people's needs greater than my own. A context of people that are learning to love each other and maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And in describing that kind of spirit-filled community, Paul's mind then goes to the home. I think that has some profound implications for us. And it works both ways. On the one hand, your growth in Christ, your spiritual life, cannot run ahead of what's happening in your home life. That if you are seeking to be a spiritual person who loves Jesus and wants to submit to Jesus, and you say, in every area except for my family, I'm going to hold on to this one because I'm not ready to give you this one, Jesus. Paul says that's not acceptable. In fact, the home is the first place that the work of Christ in your life should start to transform. So it works one way in that the spiritual life of the church should impact homes, but it works another way too, and that is that the home life has to be brought into the community of the church. That we cannot figure out how to do this on our own as isolated units apart from the community of the church. Years ago, I don't remember the exact statistics, but they did a little survey of community groups at fellowship, and they asked the question, If your marriage was in crisis, would you feel safe to share that in your community group? And the majority of the people doing the survey said, no, not a chance. That's not the kind of thing that I could bring to my church community. And the implication here is that the things that God is calling us to in marriage require the spirit-filled community to live out. So in that context, let's take a look at the the specific ideas that that Paul lays down for what a spirit-filled marriage should look like. In this section, we'll pick this up again next week, he's going to look at three relationships in particular. He's going to look at the relationship between husband and wife, between parents and children, and then between master and slave, which in our ancient Roman context, this was really common for people to talk about relationships in the household, and that pairing shows up over and over again. Now, we're going to have to do some work on what does the master-slave relationship look like, and I'm glad I'm not the one that has to deal with that. Good luck. So, we come instead tonight to the marriage relationship. And so we read in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Feel some tension? Feel some discomfort here? Let's talk about this word submit. Um, I, was, I was processing it with my wife this week, and I said, how do you feel about that word submit? And she goes, not great. And we processed a little bit, and, I said, and she, she said, you know, it just carries a tone and implications that are really difficult 
in today's culture. And we started unpacking some of what that was and what some of the things. And she said, as I was processing it with her, she goes, I, I believe every bit of that. But that word submit carries something heavy. It carries the implication of abuse, control, and domineering. And so we started unpacking, why is that? That when you hear the word submit, you even kind of want to say it with that harshness in it. What's happened that that's what the word submission has come to bring? And I think it's because in so many areas, the idea of submission is something that is forced. Something that one person with power brings on someone else without power. It carries with it the, con- the, the connotation of even abuse and pain. And so we need to unpack what does this word submit mean in the biblical language? And what does it mean for us today? And in one sense, um, you know, if we're going dictionary definitions, it means exactly what it looks like it means. But in the context, what we're going to see is that, that this concept of submission is the idea of yielding to another person. And we talked about the fact that yield might even capture the sense and the connotation of this word in our context a little better than the word submit. The idea here is that you are to yield to another person's role of leadership. And one of the objections that often comes up when people look at this concept of the husband leading in the marriage is that this was only a cultural concept in the first century. And that it made a lot of sense for the first century that there would be male leadership in the marriage, but that doesn't translate well in the 21st century. Um, There's a few problems with that line of argument to try to dismiss Ephesians 5.22. The first one is that a lot of what Paul, we're gonna get to this in a minute, a lot of what Paul's gonna say about the men's role was radically countercultural for the first century. In fact, it would have been disgustingly offensive to tell the male leader of a Roman home, your job is to love your wife and lay down your life for her. That was disgustingly offensive. So if our standard for reading these relationships is that anything that made sense in that culture but doesn't in ours, we're gonna have to cast out and retranslate, we're never gonna allow the scriptures to be offensive to our culture. And the question I think we need to wrestle with tonight was, if Paul was allowed to be offensive to the first century culture in bringing a hard truth, will we give him and the scriptures permission to be offensive to the 21st century culture in bringing truth? The other reason the idea that we can change the meaning or leave behind this passage because of the culture, the other issue with that is Paul actually grounds the aim of submission, the purpose of submission, the picture, not in Roman culture. What is the model that Paul puts forward for this idea of submission? He says, submit as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Submit as you submit to Christ. So the relationship that Paul is getting his picture of marriage from here, he's not looking to the Greco-Roman first century world and saying, okay, how does marriage work? Okay, good, let's pull that in. He's actually looking to Christ and saying, let's model marriage after the relationship between Jesus and the church. And so he calls wives to yield to the leadership of their husbands in marriage. Now, I want to make a couple of important qualifiers here. This context is talking about the marriage relationship in the home. 
It does not say women submit to men. This is not a command for a general idea of male leadership in the world or the church. That's not a biblical idea. In fact, there is no one, no man, that biblically a woman is called to yield to their leadership in except for in the marriage relationship and then to the elders that lead the church we all submit to. Those are the only two relationships where this idea is unpacked. And so therefore, I don't know if you've ever heard this. I'm sorry to admit, sometimes growing up in like the Bible Belt church culture, especially the youth culture, we thought it was funny as guys to make submit jokes to the girls in the youth ministry. Those aren't funny, they're not appropriate, and it's just not what the scripture's calling us to. The only, this is a very limited application, okay? It doesn't apply outside of that scenario. But I think if we really wanna get a picture of what is going on here and what is Paul calling us to, I think we need to go back, because at the end of this passage, he's gonna ground it in Genesis. And I think we need to go back and look at where the first marriage went wrong in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter two, we have this marriage that is set up as the most beautiful partnership imaginable. The, actual, the way that the relationship between men and women is described is that Eve is described as a partner who corresponds perfectly to Adam. The idea is a mirror image, that, that they have a task of being image bearers leading, the, leading creation in honoring God, and Adam and Eve are the perfect corresponding pair for this task. And then it breaks down in sin. And I want to look at the particular way this first marriage falls apart. Look at the command about eating the fruit that, that Adam is given in chapter two. The Lord God commanded the man, specifically commanded the man, this is his burden, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. What is the consequence for eating the fruit? Death, Death. thank you. Does Adam understand this? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Should Adam understand this? Rhetorical questions are always dangerous. Genesis chapter three, this is what happens after the sin. After the moment, and I think it's important for our understanding, even of the responsibility of leadership, that when God comes to confront the couple, he addresses Adam. He holds Adam accountable and responsible for what's taken place. And he says, Adam, who told, Adam says he's hiding because he's naked. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Okay, did Adam eat from the fruit? Yes. Had Adam been told the consequence of eating from the fruit? Yes. What does Adam know is the result if he answers this question honestly? Death. So what is his answer? The woman you put here with me. Now, it makes for a really great marriage joke, but let's appreciate the severity of this moment. Adam image bearer of God, reigning king of the world, given the responsibility of leading and shepherding in the garden, is faced with the consequence of his sin. And his answer in the face of certain death is to look at his bride, the woman he loves that he is spouting poetry about, his perfect partner, and say, Lord, kill her, not me. 
Can we let the weight of that sit in for a moment? In fact, we're gonna see this pattern play out throughout the Old Testament over and over again when men are faced with terrible consequences for their actions. One of their go-to moves is going to be to offer up their bride in place of themselves. When Adam goes down, or when Abraham goes to Egypt and is scared of what Pharaoh's gonna do to him, what does he say? Hey, um, honey, go ahead and join Pharaoh's harem. I'm gonna let you go in my place into Pharaoh so that I don't die. He traffics his wife into Pharaoh's court to save his own skin. Think of David, the king who has everything, sitting at home one day, looks down and sees a woman he finds beautiful and he says, she's mine, I'm gonna take her. The pattern of selfish, self-indulgent men ready to treat women like objects to satisfy their desires or save their own skins is a pattern that plays out throughout the scripture. A lot of times we talk about the idea of a biblical marriage and I think we need to be honest, the biblical marriages are train wrecks. I was working through it this week. The only really perfect marriage I can find is Boaz and Ruth. And that's about it, guys. The track record is not good on marriages in the Old Testament. That's not because there's something wrong with marriage. It's because there's something wrong with humans. Now, in this same section, God looks at Eve and he speaks to her. And this is what he says to Eve and the consequence of the sin. He says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That phrase, your desire will be for your husband, the exact same phrase shows up in chapter four when God is warning Cain about murdering his brother and he says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires for you. The idea of this desiring for someone is not a happy, good desire. This is the desire to manipulate, control, and domineer. What was meant to be this beautiful partnership has broken down into a relationship where the man will use his place of leadership instead of serving and loving his wife to use her for his own benefit. And where the wife, instead of enjoying this perfect partnership, will be tempted to try to buck against that, manipulate, and control. Now, I'm not saying that's the pattern for every marriage. But I'm saying that is the way what was designed to be this beautiful thing has fallen apart. And so if we're gonna understand how this plays out, we have to look at the command that God gives to to the husband in this passage. One of the ironies, I think, in how we've talked about this in conservative Christianity is If you go out on the street and ask anyone, what do Bible-believing evangelical Christians think is the biblical view of marriage? I would be willing to bet the majority are gonna talk about male leadership and the wife submitting. Now, the irony is the vast majority of this passage does not talk about the wife's role at all. It talks about the man laying his life down for his wife to serve her. How different would this whole discussion be if what we were primarily known for as a faith community was men who lay their lives down for their wives? Would the concept of submission or yielding have the same connotation in the 21st century that it does if for the last 2,000 years that had been the mark of our marriages? How many times have couples 
who are in crisis and in pain come to their church looking for guidance when both parties were doing plenty to hurt the marriage and a pastor looked at the wife and said, your job is to submit and said nothing to the husband. Take a look at what Paul has to say to husbands on their responsibility in this relationship as we keep reading. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." Now, side note, you might read that no one ever hates their own body but nourishes it and go, I think of a lot of examples of people who've done great harm to their body. Um, What Paul is describing here is the assumed normal behavior somebody would have, and we would say that if anyone is in a place where they're desiring to self-harm, that is is a sign of pain and brokenness that needs to be addressed. And so Paul is, is setting out the design and the desire and what humans would, in the best of circumstances, normally do is they desire to take care of their own body. Now, in the first century context, no man was being taught to treat his wife this way. Every man was being taught, you're the captain of your home, you're in charge, and everyone exists there to advance you socially. And what Paul's coming along is saying, hey, Christ showed us something different. In fact, we have this pattern throughout the Old Testament of how husbands tend to treat their wives. And the tendency is always to use, to neglect, and to be self-serving. And then along comes Jesus. He says, I'm gonna show you how this was supposed to work. I'm gonna treat the church, the people of God, as my bride. And I'm gonna show you what leading was always supposed to look like. And he taught this throughout his life. He said leadership is not a position of privilege to indulge yourself. Position is a responsibility to lay down your life and serve people. And he took that all the way to the cross. And he laid down his life. He died putting our salvation ahead of his own physical safety and chose to be broken for his bride. And the picture that Paul is describing here is a marriage in which the husband is so committed to seeing his wife thrive and grow and live joyfully in the Lord that he's willing to die to his own needs, to his own desires for the sake of seeing her lifted up. Now, the codependent people in here, when I say that phrase, die to your own needs, I know there's some alarm bells going off here. Okay, um, let me just address, I'm, I'm not a counselor that can speak to everything that goes into codependency except for the fact that I'm a super codependent person so I have some experience in the matter. The need to lay down your life for another person to consider other, someone else's needs greater than your own is never an excuse for denying what God has called us to. So God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God calls us to work hard, and to rest well. And so as far as I can go on that question today is to say if you're meeting the needs of someone else, 
leads you to be disobedient to God in other areas, that's probably a red flag. The other thing is the motive for serving another person is out of love and honor to God. And when that motive becomes, I need to serve them so I feel significant or important, something has gotten misplaced and that's no longer loving someone out of a heart for them to thrive, but actually loving someone out of a self-driven motive. But what this picture paints is a kind of partnership where both people are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the marriage union and for the sake of honoring Jesus. Where the, the wife is willing to yield to a role of leadership that, that Christ has given the husband and the husband is ready to lay down his life looking like Jesus to die for his bride. Years ago, there was a really horrible mass shooting um, and one of the things that was reported on was two of the men who died actually died by pushing, one was a wife and the other was a girlfriend, pushing her to the ground and wrapping himself around her as a human shield and taking the bullets. And the man died and the woman survived in both of those situations. And the journalist that was writing on it said, as a radical 21st century feminist, I am offended by any notion of the idea that men have some responsibility to protect women. And yet, as I heard this story, something felt right. Something felt right about the idea that a man would lay down his life for his bride. Here's a non-believing journalist saying there's something true and desirable in this picture. And again, unless we think that this is rooted in some Western, or I'm sorry, ancient first century culture idea, again, in verse 31, Paul roots everything he's talking about in the Genesis description. It says in verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. He starts talking about this model of unity and of submission. He can't help talking about Jesus in the church because he's like, it's so perfect, it's so beautiful. But then he brings himself back again. But like I was saying, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. It's an ideal picture of a harmonious relationship. What does that look like to actually take steps in it? What does it look like to actually begin to walk that out? I'm gonna suggest just a few application points for us to begin to grow. And the first people I actually wanna speak to in the room are the people who are not married. Um, Oftentimes we we get these marriage talks. I've heard this so often, especially if there's a whole series on marriage. And people who are not married are going, I don't know why this, I'm here for this. I don't know how this benefits me. So let me just speak for a moment to people in the room who are not currently married. The first thing that I think we have to take away from this story is that happily ever after is not in any human marriage, but in union with Christ. And if you're in a place where all of your pain and hurt and hopes and dreams are hinging on the idea that you'd be married someday, that is a false idol that will let you down every time. Your happily ever afters in Jesus. The second thing I would say is learn to practice humble selflessness rather than self-centered individualism in this season in your life. Now, I'm not saying you're single because of that. I'm saying many single people, I know I was this way before I was married. I saw that as the season where I had no obligations, nothing to hold me back from doing exactly what I wanted to do. And we often talk about how marriage is suddenly this surprising moment that happens to people where they have someone else depending on them. 
And I actually think the model of Christian community is you learn to live that way before you're married. That you learn what it's like to live in community with other people where they depend on you and where you have to limit your own desires for the sake of the other. The next thing I would say is, even if you're not married right now, a proper marriage, a proper theology of marriage prepares you for marriage. In no other area of life do we wait to learn about something until we're in the middle of it. Like no doctor says, hey, I'm gonna go ahead and open a practice and after I'm in it a little while, I might go to med school. Let me have a couple of surgeries train wreck and then I'll go learn how to do it. And yet for some reason, we think I'll learn about marriage after I'm married. Why not seek the Lord's design before we enter into it? And then finally, even if you're not currently married, you're gonna live life with people who are married who need their church community to come alongside them in their marriages. So we need the wisdom and accountability of the church. Okay, now let's talk to the people who are married. To people who are married, happily ever after is not in any human marriage, but in union with Christ. See what I did there? If you're putting the weight of your hope on your spouse to bring you security, to bring you love, to bring you everything that you need, they will let you down. Only God gets to have that place in your life. And number two is gonna surprise you too. Learn to practice humble selflessness rather than self-centered individualism. There has been a shift that's happened in how we approach marriage in our generation. If you'd go, and it's happened, every different culture has different understandings. Rewind the clock 200 years, what's the purpose of marriage? To create a society that works. I don't think that's a good enough reason. But that's what they said 200 years ago. You know what the polls say people think the purpose of marriage is now? So that I can experience self-fulfillment. I need to marry someone who helps me become the best me. The purpose of marriage is to show the love and wisdom of God in how two people lay down their lives for each other. Third, let a proper theology of marriage enrich your marriage an understanding of what God designed you for. And then marriages in the church require the wisdom and the accountability of the church. Step into it together. Hey, if you want some, some help in next steps on this, I know we've probably stoked some things going on in the room. Your first stop is community. We invite you to be in community with other people who can walk through this with you. And then we have a couple other resources I wanna point you to. Um, we have a, a study here called Reengage that helps married couples just begin to return to a biblical view to deal with some of the hurts that have happened in their marriage and begin to explore what Jesus has for them. And next Sunday night, not tomorrow, but a week from now, November 13th, Gary Oliver is gonna be doing a one-night marriage talk here at Fellowship to help give a vision for marriages on where they could go from here. We wanna invite you, you can go to our news page, mosaicnwa.org slash news and register for that. That would be a great place to jump into. And then we also have the Care Center here at Fellowship with some incredibly trained counselors that would love to step in to unpacking what it looks like to begin the growth in this area of your life. It's an area that brings so much pain and hurt and brokenness for so many people, but it's also an area where the grace and wisdom of Christ can shine in a glorious way. Because our marriages, they depend on the love of God, 
But when we start to practice this, they can also display God's love in a radically transformative way for our community. So we've been praying this formation prayer together. And tonight, we're going to pray it as a church over our relationships, over our lives, and we're going to do it in a little call and response way. And the goal for that is for us to learn how to to hear the words and then take ownership in them. So I'm going to read uh, the normal font, and then I want you to say together the bolded part as our commitment as a church as we pray to the Lord. God of love, who holds our hearts, you've held nothing back. You loved the world so much you gave us yourself. Although our minds can't comprehend the greatness of your love, still you lavish it upon us. Oh God, your love is omnipotent. Help us receive your powerful love. Oh God, your love is warm-hearted. Help us receive your tender love. Oh God, your love hymns us in. Help us rest in your encircling love. Oh God, your love draws us to you. Draw us in, Lord. Oh God, your love never lets go. Hold us close, Lord. Oh God, your love sets us free. Free us, Lord. God of love, who died for us and dwells in us, Anchor our roots in your love. In your love, we shall not want. In your love, our souls can exhale. In your love, we can really rest. Amen. Hey, as we sing this last song, church, please feel free to stay seated if you'd like. We've kind of had like a more exciting, upbeat beginning of the service with our choir up here. Um, Feel free to stand, but feel free to sit and close your eyes if you'd like to, as we uh, remember personally and, and corporately our identity.
Lord, help us to be confident. And Lord, help us also to be trusting in the identities and the callings you've given us as a body, as a family, as your bride, and also as man and wife, husband and wife here on this earth. Christ, our perfect King, Christ, our greater groom, we wanna abide in you and remain in you. Help us to do so, amen. If you friends would like a prayer tonight, either uh, to celebrate something or to intercede, uh, for someone to intercede with you over something, please come up to the banners um, afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. Someone from our prayer team would love to pray with you. And if you're new, uh, grab one of us in the info booth at the foyer or here up on stage too. We'd love to, to help you get connected. Mosaic, um, have an awesome week. We love you and we're excited to see you again next Saturday. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, amen.